One of you sent me a very funny video clip earlier this week. It's a Saturday Night Live sketch. A couple is relaxing on the sofa late on Christmas night. The busy day is over and they are talking fondly with one another about the perfect Christmas they have had. Their beautiful children, the wonderful gifts, a great meal around a big table with the extended family they hosted. Their idyllic conversation is interrupted by flashbacks about what the day was really like. <laughs> the 5 a.m. wake-up call from the screaming children. That wake-up call came way too soon for Dad, who was up half the night in a profanity-laced battle to assemble the dollhouse. The kids are, are, tore hurriedly and ungratefully through the presents. Later in the day, Mom drank too much wine in an attempt to tolerate the visiting relatives who yelled at each other about politics throughout dinner. Like everything else on Saturday Night Live, the whole thing was funny because of how exaggerated it was. And it was also funny because of subtle ways in which it is true. Christmas in our culture involves two incompatible stories. One story is a vision of chestnuts roasting on an open fire and a picture print by Courier and Ives, and the other story is the reality that none of our Christmases are quite that perfect. Sometimes the imperfections go beyond cliches of greedy children and unpleasant in-laws. For some of us, Christmas is a reminder of a loved one we have lost. Or your own personal struggle of failing health. There are other harsh realities beyond ourselves and our families. It is a wonderful thing that Christmas brings about an impulse toward giving. But behind the gifts and the meals that we donate is the fact that far too many families cannot provide for themselves and their children. And this is true not just at Christmas, but throughout the year. Many of us are much more fortunate and do a good job of counting our blessings. And still, it is hard for just about any of us to escape the stress of Christmas. In an ironic way, the idealized songs and commercials we hear at Christmas time do not help. Sometimes they make us feel worse. Like if our Christmas is anything less than perfect, there must be something wrong with us. I may not have much control over the way our culture treats Christmas, but I can say something about how you hear the Bible's story of Christmas. I sometimes fear that people think the Bible also tells a perfect story about Christmas. And I fear that many of us, because we are not perfect, end up feeling left out, like the story is not for us. But the truth is that the Bible tells a nuanced, real, deep story of Christmas. There are different kinds of people in the story, with different experiences of faith, and Christmas is for all of them. And today I want to tell you about two of those people, Mary and Zechariah. 
Most of us are familiar with Mary's story. Some of, some of us even remember the smaller details. Fewer of us know about her relative Zechariah. At the start of today's story, we read that in the days when Mary was expecting, she set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. If we were to start reading at the beginning of the book of Luke, we would already have met this couple. Elizabeth is a relative of Mary, and her husband is a priest named Zechariah. These are the parents of John the Baptist. As the story goes, like Mary, Elizabeth is pregnant, but she is much older, and Zechariah and Elizabeth had long since abandoned the idea that they would have a child. In a way that is surely meant to parallel the story of Mary and Joseph, Zechariah is visited by an angel who tells him that he and Elizabeth are going to have a child. But while Mary is remembered for her amazing faith in welcoming her unexpected pregnancy, Zechariah does not believe it. Zechariah, a priest at the synagogue, does not believe that God will do this. But Elizabeth does become pregnant, and Zechariah, as a sign of his doubtfulness, loses his ability to speak. And when Mary arrives and they greet one another, Elizabeth immediately sees this contrast in the faith of her relative Mary and the faithlessness of her husband, Zechariah. I can almost imagine Zechariah sitting right there in the room when in verse 45, Elizabeth says to Mary, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Elizabeth praises Mary sincerely, but for her own husband, her words are dripping with sarcasm. You see, Zechariah, honey, priest of the temple, some people have a little faith. So in this story, we have two parallel plot lines. Mary is the picture of perfect trusting faith, and Zechariah is the doubting skeptic. And by the time the story is complete, we will find that there is an important place in the story for both of them. Even this story of the very first Christmas is not just for people with perfect faith and perfect lives. Perhaps God's news, God's good news of Jesus, is not just for the perfect believers, but it's for the rest of us, too. But let's return for a moment to faithful Mary, because it is certainly worth listening to what this giant of the faith has to say. Even though she is young and inexperienced, she is the one who gets the story right. She knows God is at work in her life, and she responds in faith. And what she says to Elizabeth about the child she is about to birth shows her faith. It's a speech so famous it has a name, it's called the Magnificat. 
My soul magnifies the Lord, says Mary, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, even in the midst of what have, must have been a frightening and uncertain time. Mary considers everything that happens to her to be a blessing. But what's even more amazing is that even in the midst of this dramatic personal experience, Mary knows that what's going on is not all about her. She immediately starts to think about others who are not experiencing the joy that she has. And what she has to say like Tina told our children this morning, is that God is about to turn the world upside down. Is it, it is an expression that is so controversial that during the 1980s, there were tyrants in Latin America who banned the reading of this speech in churches. And this is what Mary has to say. God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Here's where we see the real depth of Mary's faith. Up until now, we might see that she represents a naive courier and Ives kind of a Christmas, but apparently that was not the case at all. She knows that her child is coming to tell us about a different and very challenging way of seeing the world, a different way of assigning value to people and things. A way that humbles the powerful and lifts up the oppressed. Mary understands that Christmas is a challenging and complicated story. So even as she experiences her own joy and good fortune, she cannot help but remember the struggles of people who are different from her. And holding both of those stories together in one's life, that is Christmas faith. I was talking about this idea earlier this week with my friend Damon. He's a minister as well. He said to me, you know, Adam, I opened up a copy of The Inquirer a number of weeks ago, and I saw a headline. Do you want to know what $282 million looks like? I was unsurprised, he said, to discover it was a story about the renovations to Union Terminal. And that's fine, he said. But what bothers me, he continued, is that the Inquirer runs almost weekly stories about the city's miserable rates of child poverty and infant mortality or the fact that even for working people, our city is 40,000 housing units short of affordable places to live. He said, not enough of us are making the connection between 
the abundance of our music venues, our parks, our sports stadiums, and the ongoing stories about places where we are neglecting our own citizens. He said, I want to read an article about what $282 million looks like to someone who can't find a place to live. I tell you that story not to make a statement about our cultural institutions, which I enjoy like the rest of you. I tell it because it is a modern-day local example of two different stories that exist right alongside one another. One is a story of joy and plenty, and the other is a story of neglect. I think if we believe in Christmas, if we claim Mary as a role model, we have to follow her lead and try to hold these stories in tension and pay attention to them both. We have to pay attention when she tells us that God brings down the powerful from their thrones and lifts up the lowly. Are we doing that in our own lives? Are we prayerful about it at Christmas? Because if we are not, the story of Christmas ceases to be for everyone. It ceases to be for the people who have less than perfect Christmases. And all you have left is a fantasy of Courier and Ives. The good news, the good news is that all of us get a chance to embrace the fullness of the Christmas story. The joy and beauty as well as the deep challenge of it. If we really want that challenge, all of us can experience the transformative power of Christmas. And that's what we learn when we pay attention to the other part of the story, to what happens to the priest, Zechariah. In the next part of the story, after, we, after the part we read this morning, but before we get to the birth of Jesus, Elizabeth gives birth to her own child, the child who will grow to be John the Baptist. On the day that they bring their son to be circumcised and to receive a name eight days after birth, Zechariah is still unable to speak. A detail of the story is that back when that angel visited Zechariah and he did not believe it, the angel told him, you will name the child John. Now this would have been unheard of, for there was no one in Zechariah's family who had that name. And in their culture, to depart from a family name simply was not done. When they come to the naming ceremony, a tablet is passed down to the mute Zechariah who takes it and scratches four words. His name is John. And with that act of faith, Zechariah's voice is restored. He gets to speak again. 
His skepticism and doubt has been turned into hope and joy, and for the first time, this lifelong priest will finally let God take the lead in his life. He has been transformed by Christmas. Like Mary, Zechariah makes a speech. It's not quite as famous as the Magnificat, but the last two verses are to me some of the most beautiful lines in all of Scripture. Looking forward to the coming of Jesus and what it will mean, Zechariah says, By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. At the end of a long period of struggle, the love and mercy of God has dawned in the life of the priest Zechariah, the doubter, the skeptic, the less-than-perfect character in the Christmas story. God has spread light into the darkness of his life, faith in the midst of his doubt. And Zechariah says this promise coming at Christmas, it is a promise for all of us, even the ones who are not perfect. Christ is coming. Christ is coming to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen.